So welcome to the Bank of England Youth Forum podcast on digital currencies, where we're taking a look at cryptocurrencies and trying to educate the youth of Britain, as well as the average person in general, about cryptocurrencies, what they are, and details about what CDBCs are, and sustainability, and various other topics related to it. So today we have a very special guest with us. We have uh, Enrico Rossi, and I'll just hand over to him to introduce himself. Thank you very much, Jack, and uh, thank you, Arnaud, for uh, inviting me. Yes, I am uh, a research fellow at UCL Computer Science Department. I'm an associate fellow as well to the UCL Center for Blockchain Technology, um, and I'm visiting at LSE Management Department. And I've been really uh, researching and teaching uh, about cryptocurrencies for uh, five, six years already. I lecture on cryptocurrencies at UCL, and I've been uh, setting up one of the first courses, actually, at LSE uh, online executive courses on uh, crypto assets. So this is pretty much me. Awesome. And Enrico, starting right right into the topic, there's a question that many listeners uh, would have, uh, which would be, when was the first cryptocurrency created? Maybe in, in a sense also, why was it created? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is a very interesting and in a sense, uh, trivial, but also complicated question, because obviously the first cryptocurrency as many of you probably knows, is uh, was Bitcoin, which was uh, actually basically went live in January 2009. The genesis block uh, of the Bitcoin, uh, first Bitcoin client is uh, January 2009. That's the first transaction. The white paper was written in 2008. So Bitcoin can be considered the first cryptocurrencies. And soon after, there were other cryptocurrencies that follow, such as uh, Litecoin, Ripple in 2013, and then eventually Ethereum uh, went live in 2015. So these are, these are the main cryptocurrencies that many of you also know. However, I think it's always important to understand the precursor, in a sense, of, of Bitcoin, right? Because Bitcoin didn't really come out of blue. And it was actually the end result of a slow process that actually started in the 80s. And so there are at least two main precursors of Bitcoin that has to be taken into consideration. One is DigiCash, uh, which was actually founded in 1989 by David Chum, which was a cryptographer, from which the whole encryption and cryptographic thing of cryptocurrencies is coming from. That was the first digital uh, e-money which was actually using a very similar technology to Bitcoin, which is the double private and public keys encryption, which was actually uh, shut down in 98. But then there was a second precursor, which was eGold, which was slightly different from, from DigiCash. It was not anonymous as DigiCash was, but the whole point of eGold was actually to make sure that you can transact value, which could be stable, um, across addresses on the internet. So in a sense, eGold in 1996 was a first very early precursor of current stable coins, in a sense. And this was also shut down, actually, by, by the Department of Justice around 2007. But these are two important precursors, right? Because DigiGold shows us the necessity of having some way to transact stable value on, online on the internet in the 90s. And DigiCash actually shows us already by the end of the 80s how cryptographers want to use encryption algorithms to actually make anonymous or pseudonymous transactions online, right? And so Bitcoin can, in a sense, be seen as the end product of something which is a merge, you know, or a conflation of these two precursors in 2009. 
pseudonymity plus encryption. So that is really where uh, Bitcoin is, is coming from. And there is a third actually precursor, which I always like to mention, uh, which is Napster and BitTorrent or Renewal, which are nothing to do with, with money and value, but they actually provided design and the architecture of cryptocurrencies, which is a peer-to-peer -peer architecture that enables distributed nodes to actually share files and share data and transact data in a peer-to-peer -peer manner. Actually, Napster, which I think went you know, was closed in 2001, was not completely peer-to-peer -peer because it has a central repository. But the technologies that came up after Napster, such as uh, BitTorrent, Emule, they were actually peer-to-peer. -peer. So the way in which I, I like to frame the origin of Bitcoin in 2009 is to bring the peer-to-peer -peer technologies of the 90s for file sharing. The first DigiCash that used encryption to, you know, having anonymous payments, and then the intuition of, uh, uh, of e-gold that actually focused on, you know, transaction of stable values across, across address. You, you, you put everything together. These are all developed, we're all developed in the 90s, really, very late 80s, early 90s. And then you can understand, in a sense, the separate efforts that have been developed in order to come up with Bitcoin in 2008, 2009. And then from there, many other cryptocurrencies, very few cryptocurrencies until 2013, 2014. That's very interesting. And I noted there that you made a few points on technology, talked about peer-to-peer -peer as, as well as the blockchain element of it. So I guess the next question is, what are the technologies behind cryptocurrencies and how does something like Bitcoin work? Absolutely. I mean, this could potentially be a very complicated topic, right? So let's, uh, let's make it quite simple and accessible. So the whole point of Bitcoin is decentralization, right? So what everyone says, decentralization, which is a very complicated term. So in order to understand the technology behind Bitcoin, we have to understand that the whole technology was developed somehow in order to reproduce some form of decentralized exchange of value, right? So, or how the Bitcoin white paper says, peer-to-peer -peer digital cash system, okay? So the, the, the technology behind Bitcoin is a technology that makes sure that the peer-to-peer, -peer, as in we were saying, transaction between two nodes shouldn't be validated or settled by a central node, but it should rather be validated and, and, and settled by a protocol. And the characteristic of this protocol is actually decentralization, which in this case means that at least in theory, at least in its original intent, the Bitcoin protocol could be run by any node. So this is what we usually call a consensus layer of the technology. So any node, could actually run a program that by solving a, a hash function, which is a very technical term, but let's say, you know, a puzzle could actually verify whether a transaction is valid or not. The, the point here is that with Bitcoin, we want to reproduce the exchange of a banknote between two people, right? So the exchange of a banknote doesn't really pass through an intermediary because it's me giving you a banknote to you, right? So so the technology had to come up with some solution to actually make sure that this transactional value could be enforced anonymously and equally by, by the network itself rather than by a special actor. And, and this is why, rather than introducing an intermediary, there is this logical layer in the blockchain stack, which is the, the consensus protocol. And the consensus protocol is a specific mathematical algorithm, encryption algorithm, that could 
originally be run by everyone. And once that someone finds the solution to this puzzle, which is not a trivial solution, actually the solution becomes harder and harder as the network grows and as the capacity to solve the solution grows, it automatically becomes harder. So as this happens, there are fewer and fewer nodes that actually will be able to address this, but anyone can verify the solution. So the trick here is to make a consensus protocol that makes extremely hard to verify whether a transaction is correct because it's it has to maintain you know, pseudonymity and encryption. However, once that someone verifies the transaction, the settlement becomes extremely easy because anyone can actually double check that the actual transactions, once they are added to a block, are correct. And this is due to the properties of the hash function, which are mathematical properties, which allow for this, right? So, so really the, the technology behind Bitcoin is, I've got a consensus protocol, which is decentralized. Potentially anyone can run it. Once that a transaction is, is validated, is this added in a block, anyone can actually see the encrypted or hashed transactions on its computer, right? So there is a decentralization in terms of who solves the problem and who accepts the transactions. And but there is also a decentralization one layer above that, which mainly involves who can see the transaction, right? Who can access the ledger and the data with respect to the transactions, one that they are added to the network. And even this technically is decentralized in the sense that potentially anyone can see the history of transactions. Obviously these are encrypted hash transactions, so you cannot see the content, you cannot see the identity of the guys, but anyone can see, right? So that's in a, in a very generic, a very high level base. This is how Bitthunder Bitcoin transaction, but even others really work. And, and the essence there is really the, the hash function that is used to encrypt this and to make sure that the consensus can be done in a decentralized manner without revealing identities and content of transactions. So that's that's pretty much the essence. You That's very interesting. You mentioned the fact that there was no intermediary, and you also men mentioned this consensus mechanism with uh, reference to proof of work. What stops someone, for instance, on Bitcoin from recording wrong information and uh, recording wrong transactions? And could you talk about uh, what a lot of people know as 51% power uh, over the network? And how can we be sure that a Bitcoin transaction is valid? Yeah, I, okay. So as I said before, this, this hash function, let's say it is a one-way function, right? So once that someone puts all transactions in a block and then creates a hash, of this bundle of transactions, there can only be one right solution, okay? So anyone can verify that the solution is the correct one. The difficult bit is to find the solution, not to verify the solution. So the transparency actually comes, also comes from this, okay? The decentralization also comes from this. Now, having said that, obviously, given that anyone can control, anyone has to agree on the correct state of the system. And so in a sense, these technologies are democratic technologies in a sense that the majority wins, right? So going back to your, to your question, there are certain ways to make sure that the whole system can retain consistency, but it, it's not a certain thing. Uh, and so there are potentially, in fact, various ways 
in which the you know the network can be corrupt. It's, this is not it's not in, technically mathematically or theoretically technically impossible to corrupt the network. Right? It is possible. There are various ways in which it can be corrupted, but always somehow some way they all make sure that there is a majority of nodes that actually agree on transactions vis-a-vis a minority of nodes which are faulty. And so there are various ways in which you can create majority. You can actually, for instance, do civil attack, or there is the majority, as you were saying, the majority attack, which is a collusion attack, which means that a lot of nodes collude in the same way in which companies can collude on the market. And they basically agree on a state of a system which is a corrupted state of a system, right? This can happen as well. So overall, the easy answer is that the majority of the nodes actually agree on the correct state of the system. And and the second thing that is necessary to understand, so why the network can retain integrity is the incentives. So the whole point of Bitcoin is that in order to make sure that an anonymous parties reach consensus, you have to enter incentives somehow, some way in the network, okay? So you have to reward um, moral or correct or honest actions, and you have to, you know, slash or punish behaviors that are basically not honest and they are corrupt. And that's the whole point of Bitcoin, in a sense. And that's the whole point of consensus protocol. So the way in which this consensus protocol works is whoever actually validates a transaction creates a block, and the network can verify that this whole transaction is correct, gets a reward, right? Gets rewarded. So introducing incentives in the network is what tries through, you know, mechanism theory to align incentives of all actors towards a coherent and coordinated outcome, right? So so really the fact that these coins, Bitcoin and all other coins are used also as a reward mechanism to the actors that are actually providing some effort to the network and are doing so in a correct and uh, honest manner. So an incentive mechanism on the one hand, and on the other hand, mechanism that makes sure that uh, under a certain threshold, it is impossible to cheat because the other nodes would actually realize it and would actually react against it. So simplifying it's the interplay between uh, these two aspects there are also others such as the long chain rules the more technical aspects that you know make sure that the history and the state of the system retains validity and consistency but this is pretty much what ensures that it is extremely unlikely actually to create an attack and i will conclude by saying that obviously the larger the network and the higher the number of nodes connected to the network, the, le- the least likely it would be to control a certain majority or relative majority of the nodes. On the other hand, however, the bigger the network, the more the nodes connected to the network, the higher the possibility that the difficulty of the puzzle to be solved is higher because the difficulty of the hash puzzle increases with an increase in the capacity of the network. This makes centralization in nodes more likely. So there is a trade-off there. So if the network grows, it is much more difficult to control a relative majority of the nodes. At the same time, it is more likely that only few specialized nodes will actually be able to process transactions, validate transactions, and add blocks to the network. So 
both aspects can play a role and, and, and both aspects should be taken into account. So it is not straightforward, but it's certain that Bitcoin, for instance, is definitely a much more secure network than minor network, precisely because of its size, precisely because of its extent of the network, of the number of nodes and actors connected to the network, right? While minor networks are more prone to collusion, in the same way in which in markets, you know, very concentrated oligopolies are more prone to collusion compared to perfect competition, right? So in a sense, you can also see that. That's a really interesting insight and definitely something that I think people should keep in mind. And I know you mentioned earlier about anonymity and one of the appeals of cryptocurrencies, especially to people who are focusing on decentralization, is not having to complete uh, KYC processes and, and being able to, you know, uh, operate on the network anonymously. And so that raises the question, are, are transactions within cryptocurrencies fully anonymous? Uh, no. <laughs> or it depends. I mean, once again, I mean, every time we say cryptocurrencies, right? But what is a cryptocurrency, right? So uh, <laughs> so at least since uh, since uh, 2017, you know, 18, we start to have more refined definitions of cryptocurrencies. We start to have taxonomies of assets and so on and so forth. So we have to make a distinction. There are certain cryptocurrencies, standard cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ether, and all the, many others, which are not anonymous, they are pseudonymous, all right? The difference being that pseudonymity means that you don't know what the identity of a guy running a node is. So you don't know the actual physical identity of someone running a node, who is behind the laptop, basically the computer. However, you can see the public address, right? So you have an understanding of which address is transacting with, with whom. So in that way, it's not anonymous because in a sense, if you do some network analysis, which is the type of analysis that some companies, compliance companies are doing now, chain analysis, elliptic, and so on and so forth, you can have an understanding through metadata of you know, who is transacting with who, even though you don't have the underlying identity of the guy controlling the hardware, the node. So these cryptos are pseudonymous in this sense. Some cryptos are anonymous because they use other technologies, Monero, Zcash, zero knowledge proof technologies that are similar to VPNs or to Tor. So these technologies that actually try to mask even you know, the IP addresses, the actual public addresses, because there are ways in which you actually either you constantly change the IP or you create fake IPs and you reroute or you scramble the IPs and so on and so forth, uh, or you process an encrypted version of an address, you know, so on and so forth. So these technologies are definitely anonymous in the sense that you cannot even understand the patterns of transaction. You don't even have an understanding of who is transacting with whom. And in that case, they are fully anonymous. Usually, these cryptocurrencies are mainly illegal in many jurisdictions, while we know that pseudonymous cryptocurrencies uh, are very much legal and subject to regulatory restrictions uh, more and more, but they can be transacted, while pure anonymous cryptocurrencies have harder times. So yeah, long story short is the most known the, the, you know, cryptocurrencies are not anonymous, they are pseudonymous. However, there are technologies 
that adopt hash functions or you know architectures that make them fully anonymous. Enrico Rossi, thank you so much for your time and for having explained to us what cryptocurrencies were. Thank you so much. Thank you, Arno, and thank you, Jack. It was a pleasure.